Welcome to the Agents Angle, where we look at the world of football agents, which a senior FIFA director states is amazing and interesting. I'm Jonathan Booker. And I'm Peter Paleologus. This week, we take a look at a long-standing transfer-related dispute involving not only clubs, but also agents, with one of the disputes reportedly settled outside of court in recent weeks. And whilst that story does have quite a lot of regulatory and legal aspects to consider, many would argue the most important aspect in a tragic saga has been lost on some, the important topic of player care. All that to come on this episode of The Agent's Angle. It comes to something when I'm using quotes from senior FIFA officials in the show introduction, doesn't it? But given the fact that some in football governance, and not just FIFA, don't seemingly have that much interest in encouraging a professional, functional and fair football agent's world, we have to take those morsels of encouragement wherever we can at times. Yes we do, I was just at the Melbourne A-League Derby just a few hours ago. Melbourne Victory versus Western United actually saw some agents there, colleagues and some camaraderie, which some people think doesn't exist in the agents world. But I will say this, Jonathan, many major stakeholders, including FIFA, everyone else, are now listening to what agents are saying. They find the agent world, maybe they don't want to admit this, intriguing and very interesting. I think now we've reached a point where the agent's influence is there and we all need to work together as agents for the better of the game. We obviously saw agents take litigation action to protect their interests, and we won't go too much into that. But going forward, the agent dynamic is changing, and we, hopefully in more unified groups in the future, play a more active role and more important voice in the game. Absolutely. But this week, Peter, the whole show is centred around a very important topic and related in a large part to a tragic story of which many people will be aware of, both inside and outside of football, as it has and continues to get coverage in the sports media and mainstream media also at times. Now, what I believe to be the main interrelated topic to that story and the topic which we focus on in this episode, it should be of paramount importance, not just for agents, but also clubs, player associations such as FIFPro and various PFAs around the world, as well as leagues and also governing bodies such as FIFA, the federations and national football associations. And that topic is player care. We're planning as far back as December to cover this topic anyway, initially with the January transfer window in mind and players moving between clubs. Then there was due to be a court hearing in the last couple of weeks in relation to a dispute between one of the agents and one of the clubs involved. Yet, as we mentioned in the introduction, the dispute has reportedly been settled outside of court. So we're changing tack just slightly. Now, the story we refer to is the well-publicised story of Emiliano Salas' transfer from Nantes in France to Cardiff City in the English Premier League at the time, some five years ago now. And just as a bit of background information for those who aren't aware of the story, Emiliano Sala was subject to a January transfer between the two clubs. And sadly, he lost his life whilst on board a plane that crashed into the English Channel that was reportedly taking him back from France, where he'd said his farewells, to train with his new teammates at Cardiff City after the transfer. 
Now, it is safe to say there has been a lot of accusations and a long-standing blame game on the matter, which invariably involve quite a lot of finger-pointing in the direction of the agents involved. So the latest part of this story is that a dispute between Cardiff City and one of the agents involved, Willie Mackay, was settled out of court just over a week ago, at the time we're recording this. And that was just before the associated hearing was due to start. And for that reason, the settlement and much of the details are confidential, but many reports are that it was in regards to the release of documents and communications to gain information about an agent's involvement in the transfer that may or may not relate to the other club, Nantes, and what may be determined as either agent-related services or concierge services in relation to the player's transfer. So at this point, some people may be asking, somewhat justifiably, how could this matter go to court when it is between two football participants on a matter related to football and ultimately a player transfer? Shouldn't it go to FIFA, a DRC, Dispute Resolution Chamber, a national DRC, CAS, Court of Arbitration for Sport? But this is a very complex situation and there are legal aspects that extend beyond the actual scope of football and agents. Plus, I noticed the judge at the Swiss Federal Tribunal, which is superior to Cass, reportedly deemed that any compensation to Cardiff on this matter must be dealt with by a civil court only. But I will pass this over to Peter, who is far more qualified on such matters, to try and explain how this has unfolded primarily from a football regulatory perspective. Yes, Jonathan. I mean, very sad case, but we know that it involves several parties and that's why there's been several litigation. We've got Nantes, or Cardiff, we've got the agents involved, we've got the issue of player care, the issue of negligence, the issue of a transfer and a contract. We've got also family. There's a lot of layers here, but I'll just stick to the football regulatory issues and Court of Arbitration of Sport. And the Swiss Federal Tribunal decision, which, because the Court of Arbitration Sport is, is based in Switzerland, it goes up to the Swiss court as part of the appeal. CAS ultimately decided that Cardiff was obliged to pay the relevant part of the transfer fee to Nantes, finding that the transfer had been completed prior to the player's death. It also dismissed Cardiff's set-off claim under which it alleged that Nantes was liable for the player's death in tort. And here, Cardiff was saying there was negligence in getting the player across, so Nantes and the agents should compensate us in terms of a set-off. That was the grounds. But when this matter went to FIFA first at the Player Status Committee and then to CAS, maybe because the jurisprudence not there, maybe because the procedural rules aren't there, they couldn't accept the, the set-off claim Cardiff were not happy about this, so we had an appeal to the Swiss Federal Tribunal, which you mentioned. And basically, the Swiss Federal Tribunal decided that the CAS doesn't have the jurisdiction to deal with Cardiff City's claim for damages, the set-off claim against Nantes. That doesn't mean that Cardiff still can't sue civilly. Now, what is Cardiff's set-off claim against Nantes? It's basically negligence. They caused loss of the player who was subject to a transfer agreement so that he was never able to commence playing for Cardiff, which Cardiff argued that is the object of a transfer agreement. The CAS and the Swiss Federal Tribunal, they didn't say that Cardiff doesn't have a claim. They just couldn't entertain under their jurisprudence or rules in terms of set-off. 
Now, there were a couple of reports. Now, I want to focus on the agent. Now, the BBC reported that there was a separate matter, the agent's matter, and relating to legal action against Nantes. Now, Cardiff has discontinued its proceedings against Willie Mackay. It was alleged, I haven't seen the statement of claim or the claim that Mr. Mackay and his son at the time arranged the flight, the private flight to Cardiff for the player. However, Cardiff brought a proceeding against Mackay for disclosure of documents and e-messages. So basically what that is, so get the information, discover the information in order to see what claim they had. This hearing against Mackay has been an agreement. It's confidential. So no longer is Willie Mackay, who's obviously had a big impact on him and his family and his agency, that they've obviously reached an agreement regarding the claim that affects him. So for Mackay, it's, a, I suppose, relief, but it's not the end of the matter. Cardiff still have other litigation, as does the family. I think I've mentioned this before. And if I can go a little bit further... This is where agents have to be very, very careful. I'm going to talk about player care, but I want to make one little point. If you recall, Jonathan, the, and I have to say it, the FIFA football agents regulation, the FFAR, had an earlier requirement of professional indemnity insurance. However, they took that out as compulsory part of your license that you needed professional indemnity insurance. But for agents, especially in countries like Australia, England, the US, parts of Europe, I would recommend any agent must take professional indemnity insurance because litigation is a big possibility and professional indemnity insurance helps you pay those costs because the costs can be very, very serious. And I'll just make one final point. You mentioned other litigation. Yes, it's in multiple jurisdictions. And I mentioned the family may have a civil claim as well. And there might be some criminal matters, which I'm not aware of. So that's where the matter lies at the moment. Different layers, but very sad situation, Jonathan. And a big part of this will be mandates. And we'll come back to mandates later on in the show, as it is an important topic for agents and one that Peter's very experienced with. He's passionate about mandates and something we've discussed on many occasions away from the show. However, for me, there is a far more important aspect to this story that so many people seem to have forgotten about, and I cannot stress this enough, and that, again, is player care. At the heart of this, there are two people who've lost their lives. And based on what I have read and heard, the accident in my mind was totally avoidable and never should have happened in so many ways. Plenty of people have had the finger pointed at them or accusations made, whether justifiably or not. But watching it all unfold over five years now, for me, there are so many people who have to shoulder some responsibility. I'm not saying blame. They have to shoulder some responsibility for what has happened. And that is whether it's directly or indirectly. Yes, it's a very sad situation. I will say this, the blame game can go forever. But as someone said, this legal dispute between Nantes and Cardiff over, I think it's 17 million euros transfer fee. Obviously, someone's passed away. People are saying lack of sensitivity is distasteful to get into a legal dispute because of the tragic circumstances. Now, obviously, football lawyers will be fascinating in this dispute because it covers the different layers, but it highlights to agents and this is the agent angle that it's about duty of care for players, player care, which we will discuss further, and also ensuring you're across any risk management issues and they are addressed. And I think that the takeaways, if I can say it that way, is ensure that you know your duties, the player care, and be across the risk management of issues that may arise. One of the things that people don't realise with this story is that it isn't only about football. 
There are other facets to this involving illegal flights that put so many lives at risk, something I personally wasn't aware of. And on that, one question I found myself asking is that how many other players involved in other transfers with different clubs and different agents may well have been put at risk in similar circumstances of these illegal flights? But because tragedy didn't strike in those cases, we possibly don't know about them. And if listeners want to know more about the whole story, BBC Wales have done a very good podcast series called Transfer on this whole matter. It doesn't just focus on the football aspect, but also the human aspect, which I think football forgets at times, including agents. That is probably because the programme and the work they have done spans five years and it was undertaken by mainstream journalists rather than those specialising in sports and football. What I would say is to anyone listening, especially agents, lawyers, club officials, football regulators, in fact anyone involved in aspects of player transfers, care or the representation, is to have a listen to the Transfer podcast series. Don't do it whilst driving, as some parts of it are quite emotional, even for a largely taciturn person like me. But it certainly made me sit up and think as to the duty of care of agents and so many different people in transfers. And what would I have done in that situation and that chain of events had I been involved? I just hope something positive comes out from the sad loss of Emiliano. That we, and I mean football world in general, learn something from this, whether it be agents, clubs, the football authorities or the wider community. And ultimately, nothing like this ever happens again. I agree with that, Jonathan. I mean, the risks of taking shortcuts, lack of quality control can result in a lot of mishaps. And you say sometimes luck plays a part too, that these things don't happen. But this event spotlights the impacts of the various decisions throughout the whole chain of a football transfer in the football industry in terms of the player aspect, families, the club's roles, the agent's role, player care role, and everything else, including logistics. And I'll say this, from an international point of view, we send from Australia players to Europe or elsewhere or Asia, and we're not there on the ground. We're hoping that our partners or the club have everything in place and any risk is mitigated. You know, we have a responsibility, there's a worry there, there's an obligation. So a lot of times the agent role, you are sending people to different destinations and you've got to make sure that you've mitigated those risks. It's that type of business. Yeah, and some people listening to the BBC podcast transfer about the story may well hear comments attributed to some agents involved and those may shock people if not feed the stereotype of all football agents being rapacious leeches such as when communicating with the player involved the player was told when referring to his personal player agent in reality these people don't care about you they care about money that is the truth because that's all we care about And another quote on a matter of the player interest, the player was told by an agent, babysitting is not our market. I'd love to be able to sit here and say that is not a true reflection of the football agent world. But I think it's safe to say I'd be lying. There are people who operate in the football world like that and not just agents, I hasten to add. They are focused totally on money and they do treat players and others as assets or commodities. Now, that's their choice. It's not the way I have ever operated, and I doubt I ever could. And I think I speak for Peter as well there. And we are not alone in that. As a large proportion of agents and other people in football don't work that way either. It's all very well, the authorities talking about such things as fiduciary duty, test of good character, and duty of care. 
But unless they are adequately implemented, upheld and enforced, what's the point? Jonathan, there are all types of agents in the industry, as there are all types of people in other parts of football. For me, it's about being able to sleep at night with what you've done for your client. Have I put the right mechanism in place to protect the client? Have I ensured my duty of care to the player, to the family? Has the player settled in player care? Do they understand all parts of the deal, the transaction, their obligations to the club? No one is perfect. Things happen, but there's a lot of responsibility in our business. This is why I'm sort of big on having a checklist or a compliance plan. Very simple stuff. One page that you've covered all your obligations and you've told the player what's in place and you've covered it also with the club. Have you covered all the key areas, ticked off all the important stuff, as we say? Even the best of us can overlook things or even sometimes give someone wrong advice unknowingly, but we have to be very careful and do the best we can. We can't just focus on one aspect, the money or the deal. It's got to be holistic. We've discussed this before because that's what kind of business it is. It's a care business as much as it is a deal business. Yeah, it's a people business. And when things go wrong, you have to do the best you can to rectify them. But it's blatantly obvious that when you don't look after something you value, whether financially, personally, professional or morally, don't be surprised when it comes back to bite you in some way, shape or form. We've said it repeatedly on this show over previous episodes that in football, the players are the primary talent. And without them, there is, in essence, no football industry. So with that in mind, there is absolutely no doubt how important player care is for clubs and, of course, players. But it is also an important area of understanding for agents. The aspect of player care and the role of player liaison officers within football has grown and developed rapidly over the last five years, if not more. So it is important agents understand this aspect. So to give us an insight on this, we have not only a former Premier League club player care professional, but someone who now trains such professionals, as well as being retained as a consultant to many elite clubs to help them improve player care at their clubs. And with that, we are very pleased to be able to welcome to the show Hugo Schechter. Hugo is the founder and MD of the Player Care Group, which is focused on improving player care standards in football, including some of the world's biggest clubs, through training, education, support, consultancy and mentorship, thus helping to continue to advance this critical element of any professional football club. Prior to forming the Player Care Group, Hugo has held such roles as Player Liaison and Care Officer, as well as Head of Player Care at several elite clubs, including West Ham, Brentford and Southampton. And as I mentioned earlier, he's now a retained consultant to several other clubs at the highest levels of professional football. In assisting more than half of the English Premier League clubs since founding the Player Care Group, Hugo is understandably recognised by many as one of the world's leading authorities on player care in football. Hugo, welcome to the Agents Angle. Thank you, and thanks for a very kind welcome. Couldn't have done it better myself, so thank you. It's, it's great to have you on because this is an aspect that so often gets ignored when it comes to the player agency side of the business. Yeah. So to start off, so that everybody can get a better understanding, can you briefly highlight the specific responsibilities of player care and liaison staff at football clubs? Yeah, it'll differ slightly from club to club, but the overall sort of main responsibilities will be the onboarding and continual support of the players and their families at a club. 
And really, you know, there are other things that can be brought into it, such as player appearances, fan mail, team travel, internal communications, etc. But actually, the sort of onboarding of the player and the family, and then the offboarding when they leave, is probably sort of the, the most commonly uh, sort of understood area, and probably the, the main crux of, of what the role entails. In your experience, how collaborative is the relationship between football agents and player care professionals within the football clubs when it comes to that onboarding and the ongoing process of supporting the player? Uh, it, it depends on the agent and it depends on the player. I would say that the way I think it works best is if we both have our understood specialisms, which are, you know, a player care professional knows the local area very well. will have that experience of onboarding and moving players and their families abroad. Um, and the agent knows the football market, the commercial side, the contractual side. And so I think the way it works best is when there's a healthy respect for both sides and, you know, you're kind of left to do your own respective uh, specialism. But with a collaborative approach, are you talk to each other and you keep each other informed but often I think it's fallen apart where agents often who are from abroad who don't have a, a local knowledge or a local connections try and sort of half arse it a little bit or try and um, suggest a supplier that's messaged them or something like that and it then becomes very confused and very messy and, and I, I've got you know plenty of times where it's fallen apart because of that or the player ends up the, being the one who loses out so I think yeah it works best when there's a good relationship a healthy relationship but it's not you know hand in hand necessarily it's kind of catching up when needed but focusing on our own specialisms it's definitely those areas of overlap between the two roles isn't there it's very nuanced when you get into those aspects of the two jobs but in your opinion do agents understand the role of player care professionals within clubs and also vice versa do you think the player care professionals within clubs truly understand the agent's role um, I think the agent's role is much more well publicized than the player care role. So I think probably we have a decent understanding of, of what an agent does. Um, I think on the other side, I think because it varies so much club to club and a lot of clubs, especially Europe and more widely around the world, won't have player care or won't have a fantastic provision. I think agents get used to not having anything at a club. And so when they do sign a player to a club that does have a good player care department, it can sometimes be a bit of a surprise or a bit of a shock or almost a bit of suspicion sometimes that because they're not retained by the player directly they might be you know a spy for the club or trying to do things that just focus on the club thing so I think in that instance it's up for myself or whoever's in that role to build that trust that actually we're doing things objectively we want that player to succeed 100% and we want them to be fully settled in the area and we have the connections and experience to do that much more quickly and efficiently than anyone, you know, coming from abroad or from outside the area. So, you know, we're happy to support and happy to sort of take that off the agent's plate to make sure that it, it's done as quickly and efficiently as possible. Hugo, you mentioned some clubs not having the resources in the player care department. Mm. How could the football agents better assist the club ensuring player care in terms of their players and also the liaison staff in their role to understand their players, especially from the international perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, it's good for agents to have a good network in the player care world, because even if they're signing a player, for example, to, you know, and the both clubs have this, so it's not a great example, but to Everton and they know the player care person at Liverpool, they will still have shared knowledge of where to live, that kind of stuff. It's maybe some good schools. But actually, when a player signs, often the club has a pretty good dossier of this is who the player is. They have a partner, they have two kids, they have a dog, they speak English, they don't speak English. And we often get that from the scouting department. But actually, any sort of personal information you can give in terms of like their working style. So some players are very direct and not interested in a long conversation. Some players are very friendly and chatty. Some players 
players struggle with speaking publicly. Some players are very happy to. Um, and some players would be like, well, don't WhatsApp them. They'll never respond. You have to call them. You know, that kind of thing. Any sort of little bits of information that means we can onboard them quicker or get to know them better will be great. Um, and also how the agent wants to work in terms of if they want to be on top of everything, then that's fine. We can keep you on the loop and everything. But oftentimes, you know, you'll loop an agent into a 45 email conversation about the curtains that are being left in a flat and they go, please stop emailing me. It's the transfer window. Like, I don't need this level of detail, you know? So I think just an understanding of as an agent, how you want to work with the player care stuff. We're normally pretty flexible, whether it's call us if there's a massive crisis or keep me posted with every single bit of information. I think, you know, it's good to understand that early on. In terms of checking in, mm. how often should agents check in at their players and also check in with players, staff within clubs? Is it essential for them to be checking in monthly or weekly or as often as possible? It, it depends on the player, really, because the way you approach a 19-year-old single player who's moving from abroad is very different to a 35-year-old who's moving from one London club to another, you know. So I think the agent will know their player best. Often the agent the player care will speak if there's an issue or something they need backup on, you know, maybe a behavioural issue where they're like, I've tried speaking to him, can we sort of discuss this together? But often, like, what we find with clubs is that the players and the families need the player care professional a lot in the first three weeks when they're onboarding. But once they've been onboarded... The requirements day to day are much less. And so I would say probably in the first couple of weeks, it's you're looking at every day or every other day. And when you're looking at if they've been there three years, I don't think you need to check in every month. I think it would be every six months, come to the training ground, have a coffee or give us a call or whatever. But you know we're pretty good at reaching out as well if there are issues. So I think it's rather than saying you need to do it every two weeks or not, I think it's down to the player. It's down to the situation and down to that sort of phase of time at the club, I would say. In terms of challenges in player care, the major issues that need to be addressed, whether it's schooling, whether it's location of the residents, whether it could be lifestyle, whether it's a cultural element of the town or city or the club, what do you think are the major challenges you come across as a player care professional that you really need to be on top of to deal with players and, of course, their agents? I think probably it's bigger than any of those smaller issues. I think it's the balance of how do you prioritise the club's needs and the players' needs at the same time, because player care staff are club employees. And I think it's difficult because you're you're paid by the club and you're employed by the club, but you also deal with these people as individuals. And so there are times when you maybe need to be more on the player's side and say, listen, I'll, I'll get you out of that player appearance because I know your wife's having her sixth month scan for the baby. And yes, you've forgotten to tell me, but actually I know how nervous she is. And so I'll help you out on that. Whereas by the contract, it should say, well, you've had three weeks notice of this appearance. You should be fined if you don't show up. So I think the individual things are things to be careful of that you mentioned, but actually trying to make sure that you are balancing the club's needs and the players' needs and you're not getting too far either side because, you know, I've seen plenty of player care staff lose their jobs because they get too much on the player side and they end up just kind of becoming a doormat for the players where the players do whatever they want. And actually the player might want to live an hour and a half away next to his friend from another club, but but that three-hour round trip will be really bad for the club. So it'll be saying, actually, no, that's not appropriate. We're not allowing you to do that. So it's it's that kind of constant movement between employee and employer and us being in the middle that's often the hardest thing to deal with, I would say. What about the agents themselves in terms of player care? I mean, I know in Australia we have the players union and they've got development officers yeah. and assistance in different levels. Yeah. But in terms of the agent themselves as a mentor, as someone providing feedback in their own sort of care role, what do you see is essential for an agent to really provide that maybe can't be always provided by the player care liaison officer or the player care officer at a club? 
I think you got probably a more well-rounded view of the player because as an agent, you watch their games in a different way. Like if I'm working at a club, I'll watch the game, but I'm not really going, wow, he's cut inside really well there or actually his build-up has graded. I'm just going, I'm glad they can't call me for 90 minutes and I can actually, we've got the tickets and the families in. I don't have to worry about it. So I think for the agents, they can see the person because they, they speak to them. They can see the player and they can see how that fits in. And also they can see that career progression. I think that's something that player care wouldn't get involved in. So yeah, no, I think it, it it's trying to just have that more well-rounded approach to the player as a career person and as, as a player. I have very little interest in how players play. I don't actively watch football anymore. And so I'm probably easier for me to go, how are you as a person? You know, I see how they're doing as a person is more important to me than how doing as a player, whereas the agent's got a more rounded approach. Can you share any example of a successful collaboration between a football agent and player care team from a club, which has positively impacted players' lives, mm. especially for a player that may have had a difficult past or had difficulties at other clubs? Yeah, um, I think often it's when a player's got like a lifetime agent, so someone who's kind of known them when they were a kid and, and got to know them and, and now they're an adult player, they have that closeness of relationship with the family, the wider family, not just the partner, but, you know, mum and dad or uncle or brother, whoever it is. It can be really useful to understand like the family dynamic. Um, I'm not going to go into specific names of people for confidentiality, but actually I think we had a player who suddenly had a lot of hangers on and... I just spoke to the agent. I was like, there are all these people who are living with him who aren't his family, but they are friends or people have popped up. I was like, has he always worked like this? Or are these people new? And he's like, oh, no, these are two friends from school. They don't have jobs. You know, they come out and they're pretending to help him, but I think they're a bad influence on him. And so we kind of worked together, myself and the agent, to not ban them because neither of us had that power, but just to kind of say, look, if you want to give your friends some money, give them some money, but don't hire them to be a nutritionist when your friend's got no nutritional background or don't have him be your driver when he's not got any specific driving qualifications. He's not done a defensive driving course. He's not got a huge amount of experience driving. If you want professional, if you need nutritional support or chauffeur support, let's hire a top nutritionist and a top chauffeur. And then you just give your mates you know, a present or an allowance or whatever you really think you want to do that. But also saying to that player, look, this money is not going to go on forever. And so you need to be protecting yourself. And if you're giving your mate, I don't know what he was giving him, 50 grand a year. Well, when you're 40 and you're not earning any money, how far can that 50 grand a year take you? You know, so is it kinder to sort of say to that friend, look, you're always welcome to visit. I'll pay for your flights if you want to come out, but you need to go get a job or you need to go home or whatever. And actually it was a very hard conversation to start, but actually by working with the agent with his lifelong relationships with the family and then my sort of viewpoint experience in the industry, we solved that situation mostly and the player didn't feel attacked. It, it kind of worked out for the best. So yeah, there's definitely examples of when it does work well. That's a fantastic example of that overlap, of that shared responsibility, not only in the welfare, but you're looking at the performance as well. And it's great when it comes from two different spheres of the player's professional life that they can see that and they can look beyond it. But uh, I think we'd all like a friend who gives us 50 grand a year, wouldn't we? <laughs> um, in the middle of a transfer window, yeah. when many agents and player care staff are working overtime, we probably work overtime a lot of the year anyway, mm. but that key period is just so manic. How can football agents contribute to the transition and adaptation of players when they're moving, not only to a new club, but also the very complicated aspect of moving to a new country? How can agents contribute to make that an easier transition? 
Well, often agents come from a similar background to the player, although not exclusively. When we sign a foreign player, they often have a German agent and they're German. And so to try and help us with the cultural assimilation is really important. It might be that they have a favorite food that they really like, or we can help them with a German TV satellite dish, you know, just so they can watch TV and, you know, feel at home. The ultimate thing is we want to try and make them feel at home in their new city, country, whatever, as quickly as possible. So any insight into what makes that player tick and what really important is vital and also understanding who that most important person is and it can be mum dad brother sister boyfriend girlfriend it can even be dog sometimes but just to understand from us who who is the other person that we need to make happy in this relationship because so many times i see players who are really happy and they have a social group naturally at work at the training ground but it's the partner who ends up not working normally often without much of a, a sort of community and often quite isolated and so what happens is they kind of sit at home get wound up and then as soon as the husband boyfriend comes home bang oh i can't believe this this is terrible this is the problem whatever and so actually trying to find a sense of purpose and help that partner maybe find the volunteering opportunity or connect them with other partners you know either at our club or at a different club or, or just help them you know assimilate as well can lead to players being much more settled in but again understanding from the agent who's known the player in the family longer you know really who can we focus on who who's the real decision making and, and often it is not the player it's partner or it's mum or dad normally is, is kind of the huge decision maker in the player's life but we've got to try and keep them happy you know as well as the player again that's another crucial thing that's so often forgotten the importance of that partner in the player's life and the family unit yeah. and a lot of people can't understand why a player can go from one club to another be totally happy at the second club and not perform at the first and it's because it's not so much on the training side of it or the playing side of it it is the worry of what's going on at home yeah. and bringing in that family unit is crucial but part of that is relocation what are the key considerations that you would say an agent needs to make sure that transition is as smooth as possible? Like some of the elements go into contract negotiations to make sure that that's facilitated. It's better to get that done up front. What should they keep an eye out? I'm not asking for your advice on contract negotiations or what should go in a contract, <laughs> but what do you think the agents should be mindful of in terms of that lifestyle, that relocation aspect? Yeah, I mean, the one contractual bit of advice I would say is that in the UK, you get eight grand tax free relocation. So, you know, putting that in the contract and most clubs will give it anyway, but an easy way for the player to benefit from that relocation amount and to find out what specifically is allowed in that. Um, every club has a different policy. The HMRC rules are very loose. So some clubs are very strict on it. Some clubs are not. But before that money spent, making sure that that's agreed and, and understood. Um, I think the wider thing is to try and not just rush into the first situation that, that works. And I think that what that means is, you know, the property market in London, for example, is incredibly fast paced. Um, we signed a player with Brentford over the summer and we had them flying over before he actually arrived uh, to start his contract in the summer break. You know, we'd be flying out Tuesday night. I'd book in with the estate agent six viewings on the Wednesday and Wednesday morning we come by and four of them out of the six had already been let because that's how quickly the market moves. And so what I was trying to impress on them is they came from a small town uh, in Europe where properties sit on the market for four months and you can go and visit it five times and negotiate. And what I didn't want them to do, though, is to jump at something because they thought they would be homeless. As much as the things, they go off the market quickly, they also go on the market quickly again. And what I didn't want them to do is just rush into finding a house that didn't work for them. And also the way the market is, is you could be locked in for two years. So if you get that wrong and we were just rushed and took the first house that had five bedrooms and actually it wasn't near any schools and it was a hour long drive 
drive because of the traffic and all of this, and there's no parking outside, then actually, yes, we've onboarded the player quicker. But that's why a lot of, you know, when we're talking about clubs is the KPIs for onboarding. One is speed of onboarding, but the second KPI is no moves in the first year. Because if a player has to move house three times, but they've onboarded in one day, that's not a successful onboarding, you know? So it's trying to basically take a breath and go, yes, we want to find a house, but actually let's make sure this is the right house, the right place to live. You know, again, we had a player where the agent said that he was asking for a G-Wagon, which is a, you know, £150,000 car. It's huge. Yet the player had never driven on the left-hand side of the road. And I said to him, like, well, look, my advice would be is we get you a C-Class Mercedes, which is nice. It's small for six months. And if you don't knock the wing mirrors off in six months, then get him a G-Wagon. So that's what we did. And he knocked the wing mirror off on the first day. But I was like, well, that's a £150 wing mirror rather than a five grand wing mirror. And so rather than just going, yes, we need a G-Wagon, yes, we need a 14-bedroom house, and he's there living by himself, what do we actually need? Let's look at the needs and understand them and take a breath and then go and get it right. So rather move once, that takes two weeks, rather than moving three times in six months. When a player doesn't speak the language, and I'm not talking about the family, they come into England, I suppose learning the language is part of the player care development plan for the player within the club to learn English if they don't speak the language and really need to progress. Yeah, absolutely. I think the old fashioned way was to get translators around the club. Um, but actually what we advise clubs to do is to have a standard policy of a level of English that every player has to go to. The benchmark I really like is that they can do an interview in English because it means that there's a conversational level of English. It's not the visa level in the UK is an A1 level, which is the lowest level. So to just say that actually doesn't help them be around the training ground, around the facility, speak to the manager here, you know, in the moment on the pitch, we focus on football English first. So what are the things like offside, man on, what are the referees going to be saying? That's like day one. But actually, it's very much that you need to do intensive, probably four times a week of multiple hours a day of English lessons until you are able to do an interview in English. Now, the good thing about that is that often players will say that they can't do player appearances or commercial engagements because they don't speak enough English. And so our answer to that is, right, we'll start the four hours of English lessons a day again. And funnily enough, then they realize they do actually speak enough English to go and do the player appearance. And it just means that if you're an agent, that it opens up so many commercial possibilities, again, for your client, because they can able to converse, whether it's English or another language. But I think if you have a player and you are from abroad and you are likely to have that player move to England, for them to start learning English before they get there is going to have them in such a good stead. But also the other thing to consider is the regional accents that we have, especially in the UK. You know, if you grow up watching Netflix and you have a lot of American English, it's very different to if you go up to Newcastle or to Liverpool, the accent is actually very different. So what we again do with clubs is if you're in a, an area with a regional dialect is to try and get the English taught either in that dialect or to a point where the different phrases or different pronunciations are highlighted and explained. And I had a great example at West Ham where we had a player, English wasn't his first language, and he was sat at a table with Robert Snodgrass, who is from Scotland, Aaron Cresswell, who is from Liverpool, Mark Noble, who is East End, and Andy Carroll, who is a Geordie. And he just had the blankest look on his face. And, you know, they're speaking very fast, they're having a laugh, and there's a joke, and there's sarcasm, and double entendres, and, and all these other things. But as a non-English speaker, it's very hard to understand what's going on. So... I think it's not just about learning English. It's about learning the regional dialects and being at a point where you are comfortable conversationally because it'll just make that player so much freer in their life and being able to go and be much more self-sufficient. 
With the international movement of players, a lot of players, even English players, are moving to Germany and other markets, Saudi Arabia as well. Yep. Is there a way that football agents themselves can advocate for more importance placed on player care in the broader football industry, not just in England, but internationally during contract negotiations or transfers and more emphasis on player care? Do you think there needs to be more robust discussion about the importance of this as much as it is about the deal, the sponsorship or the image rights? Mm-hmm. Do you think there's got to be more emphasis on a broader level? Yeah, I mean, agents and regulation don't go well together at the moment, but actually there's no player care regulations at all in the first team environment anywhere in the world. And so clubs are very much free to do what they want. And I think if you were doing your due diligence and you're lucky enough to have a client who has 10 offers to ask them what player care provision their club has and you know what is provided for the onboarding of players i think is a really good step but at the moment you know we as a company and me as a as an individual are trying to show clubs the power of this player care because you know you mentioned saudi arabia there well we've got a lot of players moving over there very quickly paid a lot of money but how great would it be as if actually instead of them having to pay 500 grand a week actually it becomes a really exciting place to live and the players really look forward to going there and it rather than where it's like we have to go because it's so much money actually they know the facilities are going to be great out there they know that the football's going to be good they know their family is going to be happy that makes it a much stronger more sustainable league which is i know where they want to get to and player care is a big part of that because players call each other players know each other we all know that football's a very small industry and so if you are at club x and you have a former teammate who's playing out in saudi and you get the same offer the first thing you're going to do is call him and say what do you think is it good is it bad and he might go, it's a lot of money, but actually my, my partner's miserable. The kids are not happy. They're really missing their friends. There's no one out here that we know. The house is beautiful, but it's very soulless and we, we don't really enjoy it here. You're going to then have to pay that player another couple hundred grand a week for them to come and agree it, or they might not say yes at all. So it's really something that the clubs can do very cost effectively that can make a massive, massive difference. One of the things that sadly gets overlooked but quite rightly, mental health support is a key aspect of player care and player welfare, both for player care professionals and agents. And I was stunned. I only realised a couple of days ago, it's 14 years since Robert Enka. And that was the one that first really brought it into the spotlight in football. And we're all still learning. Mm-hmm. But are there any things from your perspective that can allow agents to better contribute to this? Are there any things that they should be aware of? And of course, then if they do become aware of them, they can work with player care and player liaison to hopefully address some of the drastic situations we've seen. I think this is one of the areas where agents probably have a a leg up over the player care staff in providing a really good independent mental health provision, a counsellor. And and I think there's a common misconception between counselling and performance psychology And counselling is really about making sure that that person is able to cope and has the support with their personal life to be able to be open to performance psychology, which is about fine tuning them as an athlete to get to that point of highest performance. Um, But often when clubs try and put in a counselling or even a performance psychology thing internally, it's like, well, are they a spy? Are they going to go back to the club? If, If a player says, I don't think I want to sign a new contract at this club and that mental health professional is a club employee, Do they have to go and tell the sporting director and say, listen, I know you're banking on player Y having a new contract, but actually I don't think he's going to sign it. 
well, that's very difficult for that councillor to be put in that position. And I think they would say, no, it's confidential. But if you're then a club and you're paying for someone who has all these secrets about their assets, and if you want to be, you know, callous and put them as assets, then that's a worrying position for a club to be in. So actually, I think this is something where the agencies who can say, look, we have an independent mental health service that's available, you know, flexibly for you remotely. And it's between you and that person. That is an unbelievable resource that clubs, I think, struggle to offer and be trusted. So I think this is one of the areas where agents getting a independent mental health professional on the books, whether, you know, it doesn't have to be a full-time position, it can be a service that players can access as they need, I think is a really powerful way that the agents can make a big difference in this space. And that, of course, improves the offering from the agents or the agency in a very competitive industry. But in terms of enhancing that appeal to clients, whether they be clubs or players, the holistic support that agents provide to players, what advice would you give to them to improve that both on and off the field of play or at or away from the stadium and the training ground? It's really difficult. And I've thought a lot about this because I've seen some really good agents and I've seen some really bad agents. And I was at a club and I remember the player was about to sign with his long lifetime agent. And another agent walked in who I don't know how they knew were there, but they found out. And he goes up to him and goes, listen, if you come and sign with me now, I'll get you 20 grand more a week. And I'll put your mum as a signing fee and all this. And I'm like, what is happening here? And he's like, I want to speak to you afterwards. I don't care. This is not a personal relationship. This is a financial relationship. I get paid. You get paid more. And we leave it at that. And the player was very, very strongly considering just dumping his agent of many years to do it. And I don't know about the legal side of that. And I don't know about all of that. But it was that quick of like, and he could have gone, yeah, I'll do that. Now, that for me means what is it that your client cares about? And I think you know your players better. Some of them are there to milk the game as much as they can while they're still able to earn money. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you as a player go into the industry saying, and I know players who are like, if I could earn the same money and be an accountant, I would do it. I hate the public pressure. I hate uh, the travel. I hate missing all my family events. But I cannot earn money like this doing anything else. So I will play football but I want to earn as much money out of it as possible and then retire and never go back to it. I think that's fine. And I've seen good agents who are good people not have the success because they're not cutthroat enough and not willing to go and steal clients and not willing to go and fight for their clients because they're like, well, if he would be happier with his other agent, then I should let him go. And that's why I'm not an agent because I don't have that cutthroat ability and, and, and I think that's really tough. And so I don't think I'm in a position to say to agents, you should do this or should do that because unfortunately, some of the agents that I've met who have been successful, as in financially successful, are usually some of my least favorite people in football. And some of my favorite agents that I actually have a lot of time for don't have a huge amount of clients. They're successful people and they're lovely, but I'm not sure are successful agents in the sort of traditional metrics of success. So maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's pretty unfair slant on things, but that's just what I've seen over a decade of in the game. I don't think you're alone in that take. And I think Peter and I can totally empathise with that and what we've seen. And it's interesting to hear it from somebody from the club side actually say that. But in terms of player care, as I said in the intro, it's developed so rapidly over the last five to 10 years. How do you see it evolving in the future and what challenges and opportunities does this present for not just agents, but also player care experts in their support of players? 
So I've seen a couple of agencies either recruiting player care staff or looking into how they would do this. The reality is, unless you're kind of a niche agency where you're only operating in a couple of countries, it can be really hard to have a good player care provision internally. Because if you've got a player who's in the Premier League and then the next offer is in Turkey, if you do not have a knowledge of Turkish housing law and have a good network in Turkey, you're going to end up basically just Googling stuff and probably messing it up because you get taken advantage of by someone. And so that's why we say to agents, you know, try and put pressure on the clubs to hire a player care person who's local and is trustworthy and has good integrity and, you know, is well managed. But actually to do it as an agency is so difficult unless you are like, we only take Mexican players into UK. Well, if you do that, then you know the Mexican market, you know the British market, then you're quite okay. But if you're operating more widely, it's very hard to be an expert in all the different areas, in all the different countries and have the connections and be able to actually add value more than the player would probably be able to do himself. And so we're seeing a rise of concierge companies. A lot of them are taking advantage of players, charging them an absolute fortune on top of things. So we don't advocate for that. So we're trying to get clubs to say, this is something that we need to do internally and we need to protect the investment we're making in these players. And whether someone's being bought for £10,000 or £10 million or £100 million, they're an asset to that club. And so the club needs to try and protect that asset in varying levels. And so I think the threat is, is that clubs don't continue not to really do this at a top level. And, and clubs on the whole don't. You know, there's very few clubs in Europe with proper player care departments. And that means that there'll be more bad actors who get access in, whether they're concierges or they're sorters or fixers or whatever, who are making a massive commission probably on both sides that leads to players probably not being that happy and being ripped off. So I think the more that clubs can set, you know, agents can say when they have a choice, look, we want to hear what's your player care offering. And if it's not impressive enough, you know, we might not take our client here because we don't think he can succeed or we think he'll struggle to succeed. That's a big call for an agent to make. And I understand that. But working hand in hand will be the way that we can really make sure that players are better looked after. And you know, trusting the knowledge of the local person and well, you know, can also question things. If you're an agent, you deal with a lot of contracts. There's nothing wrong with looking at a contract that you're doing with a player care, with a house or whatever, because you might spot something or, you know, accountability is great. But I've seen agents, you know, get involved and try and add commissions into things and cause havoc with things or put their own contractors in because they're getting paid or they're getting whatever I don't know. And again, that's not of all agents, but I've seen it multiple times and enough for it to be a, a you know, a common thread. And it just means that you end up distrusting each other and pushing each other apart. So for me, the best model is having it in clubs. It's great to have people at agencies, but I think they struggle to be relevant enough, quickly enough in a new environment, which can be really, really difficult. And of course, that investment isn't just the financial investment from the club. The agents have to see the investment of time and effort that they put into player clients as well and how that can help them. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step is to actually understand the role of player care, player welfare and the professionals who work with clubs in that aspect. And of course, to get that first step, I'm sure they're welcome on your courses as well, Hugo, to get that understanding of player care and what they should be looking out for. So with that, Hugo, I think it's a perfect message to end on. Thank you so much for your time and all the best with the Player Care Group moving forward. Thank you very much, both of you having me on. And yeah, hopefully it was useful. It was. Thank you for so much. Thank you. Some really valuable insights there from Hugo, not just as to the increasing value of player care in the football industry, but also how player liaison and player care teams work within clubs. And also how agents play an important role and can have an integral part to play in improving the provision of player care to the benefit all involved, not just the players. 
Yes, I think both the clubs and agents have to work together. It's a crucial role. In Asia, I can give a little bit of experience in relation to player care. It's also a big thing from the player's perspective. You're moving into probably a cultural environment you're not used to. And in order to have a successful transition in that new environment, you've got to be comfortable. I mentioned briefly Australia. We have relocation allowances, which cover players' relocations costs like travel and accommodation, and someone in the club helps with this. And when you come to Australia as a player, you need to keep receipts in terms of your relocation in order to get that allowance. And there are player care programs. In Asia, they may have several people with the players' transition to help with accommodation, schooling, transport, extra flights as part of the offering. Sometimes they, especially if you're in a city or a town that are not familiar with, they may give you a chaperone or a driver to get used to the new city or the town. MLS, we know that they have the player liaison officer as well. And really, it's one of the most important positions in the football club. They aim to stop, I would say, problems getting to the clubs or the managers or the coaches' door, and they can help deal with problems at an earlier stage. So very important in the US, across the board, player care, as Hugo has said, fundamental now in this international business, and agents have to be on top of it as well. And going back to the Emiliano Sala story once again, and thinking about some of the claims and quotes attributed to people in that sad episode that we mentioned before Hugo's interview, there does seem to be that there was a breakdown in communication at various points when it comes to player care. One of the key things that struck me about our chat with Hugo, which we must point out was recorded a few months ago now, is the importance of effective communication between the agents and the club, not least the player liaison and player care team, as it makes life so much easier for both parties. And I think it's so obvious that the provision of the right support for the player not only benefits the player and their family, but also the club and the agents in the short term and the long term in so many ways. Yes, I think the agent has to be across the player care services. So when they explain the package, it's not just the salary, the wages, the bonuses, the sell-on fee, all those things. But also in order to convince a player to take a deal, you need to say that sometimes the intangibles are so important that someone's going to assist with education if you've got kids or family. Someone's going to assist with transport. Someone's going to assist with opening a bank account in a new country. And agents need to know what the package is and get it in writing. I mean, clubs don't always provide a silver service, so agents have to be on top of it to know who's providing the player care at the club, who the payroll people are, who are the service providers at the club, and I think Hugo mentioned this, that the club uses for onboarding and assistance. So it's not just the club's responsibility but the agent's responsibility as well. Now we're going to switch back to something of a more technical and regulatory, if not legal, aspect of the Emiliano Sala transfer. I think we've already stressed that after five years of disputes that involve the clubs, the agents, and also the authorities such as FIFA in this matter, it's far from over. Not least with Cardiff City being quoted as saying that they would take legal action against those responsible for the crash to recover its losses. And that isn't reportedly just the 20 million you spoke about before, Peter. It could be up to 200 million due to the club's relegation from the English Premier League that season and the revenues lost from that. But a couple of other things I've noted from various reports is that there's still a big question over the football authorities taking responsibility here. We have FIFA, the French Federation, the English Premier League, the FA in England the FAW, which is the Welsh FA, 
And not many of them seem to be taking that much responsibility for it. The FA in England apparently told the BBC that they had limited evidence in this case and limited jurisdiction in overseas matters. And you mentioned about insurance and professional indemnity insurance for agents. But an interesting one here is that Cardiff City are reportedly suing or have previously sought to sue their insurers of players in their squad. But I think the most important thing to highlight here for agents and others operating in relation to French football is that a prosecutor in Rennes, the prosecutor told the BBC that if found to be acting as a sports agent illegally in France, they could be subject to a €30,000 fine and, get this, two years in jail. Wow. Yes, that's just another layer. And this, as we've said, with France, is part of that national legislation on the licensing of sports and football agents in France. One of the things that does seem to be clear in all of this is that there were reportedly several agents involved in the transfer, whether licensed or not. And as we have spoken about on many episodes before, the involvement of two agents, if not three, is relatively common nowadays. But I think we do agree that the more agents involved in one transfer, the more complicated, if not messy, it can get. Subsequently, the involvement of multiple agents also leads onto the topic of mandates involving agents. And by all accounts, a matter of which agents had mandates from the clubs involved in the transfer of Emiliano Sala is now seemingly at the centre of the ongoing disputes. But we aren't going to talk about the specifics of this case in regards to mandates, agent regulations and licensing, as it's all ongoing. But mandates is one of your favourite topics, Peter. We've discussed them away from the show on many occasions, and it is something that you take a great interest in. Yes, Jonathan, and finally I get a chance to discuss and cover mandates. A mandate, I think, has been part of the worldwide agent business for decades, as it's one of the most, I would say, efficient and effective agreements available to facilitate deals in this international business. It's less formal. It's quick. We need to look at a mandate as a pretty much a short-term contract. Now, I'm going to go through some differences between mandate, a collaboration agreement, a scouting refer agreements, and subcontract arrangements. I just briefly want to go through the differences because we need to understand the difference between these three, four different agreements. The mandate is more aimed for specific player transaction to a club or a league or a market. It works well because it's mainly aimed at maybe one specific transfer window or when exploring the possibility of identifying early interest pre-transfer window where clubs can sign a pre-contract with a player, or exploring the market or exploring a deal, which we call an explority mandate, a potential deal. Now, we've also got collaboration agreements between agents and agencies. These are not mandates. These are more agreements between an agent, two, three agents, or two, three agencies, maybe in different jurisdictions, different countries, who work together going forward. It's more long-term. It's a bit like a memorandum of understanding, an MOU. We've also got subcontract agreements, which are more utilized when an agent wishes to assign or subcontract certain duties to a subcontracted agent, and it's ongoing. So it might be in terms of representation, getting some advice in relation to a player or a coach. And then we have scouting or referral agreements. These are more akin to consultancy service, I would say, or talent ID or providing scouting of players or agents to come out to scout talent. And they're used by clubs or agents. Now, let's focus on mandates. There are three types of mandates. 
The first one is the club mandate. So basically it's given to an agent by a club to approach players or another club or the player's agent. They also may work together with a commission agreement, which is a separate agreement. Many big agents, I would say, in the major markets have club mandates in order to be able to conduct their lucrative transfer broking business. So it's basically a club giving an agent a mission to get a player or contact another club or contact their agent of the player. The second one we've got is player mandates. Player mandates are given by a player to an agent to approach certain clubs or certain geographies or leagues or markets. The third and probably the most complex is the multi-party mandate, which is the mandate between two agents. So the player's agent gives another agent who's in a market of interest in another country the ability to approach clubs where they have the connections. It can be, as I mentioned, exploratory to ascertain interest, or it can be a complete mandate to bring a deal. And that mandate provides parameters. Now, how do we structure a mandate? And I would say today, because we do have the FFAR, the FFAR has five, six contract requirements. You would need to put those into a mandate. So to structure a mandate, the first thing is what's the appointment? What is being mandated? Is it to negotiate a contract or to get interest? For which countries or which clubs? How open-ended is it? So if it's a club mandate, what remit is the club giving you to bring to them? Is it some interest? Is it contact the player or bringing their agent on board to discuss any terms? The second one is the term, how long the mandate will be valid to, and that could be one transfer window or the end of the transfer window or two transfer windows, but it tends to be short. The third, remuneration. Who gets the commission? Where do we get the commission from? Does the club pay? Does the player pay? That's very important to put in the mandate. Termination. When does the mandate finish or when can it be terminated? You obviously, if you're taking on a mandate, you want to give yourself ample time. But with mandates, people are in a hurry. So it is a limited expiry period. Exclusivity. This is where it is very important. For which market or which clubs? When I mean market, it's leagues or geography, country or two, three countries or two, three clubs. You need to name them on the mandate and they're very specific. Now, when receiving a mandate, I need to clarify whether the player is free or a contracted player. You need to clarify that because remember, you've got to be careful as an agent, you don't induce a breach of club contract. So you need to clarify that relationship. Now, some other things to structure a mandate is that there's no contract of the same scope or mandate with the same scope with another agent. So when we talk about exclusivity, we're also talking about making sure the player or the club have not given someone else the same instructions or the same mandate as you. Very important to protect yourself. And also, if you're dealing with the club or the player's agent is giving you the mandate, make sure they're named on the mandate. Now, the other thing that people forget is now with the FIFA portal, well, as long as the FIFA portal is working, we can upload the mandates on the FIFA portal and that sort of protects you. So make sure that you upload a mandate if you do get it and you're working on it in the transfer window. Two things, and I'm not going to cover these today, is that the FFAR, the FIFA Football Agent Regulations may affect mandates, is the connected agents term. Now, connected agents is probably a topic for the future, but I think you need to look at, are you a connected agent with someone giving you a mandate? Because that has other implications under the FIFA rules. Also, licensing and compliance. Have a look at who you're dealing with and make sure they've complied with their obligations or their licensing. Now, 
Many experienced players will give short-term mandates. The key is to make sure they're not giving a lot of mandates to random agents because it's a very key consideration for me is if I want to bring them a deal and I know I'm approaching clubs and other agents are approaching the same clubs for the same player, that is embarrassing. So you need to clarify that before you take on the mandate. I would say the mandate is a positive tool for brokers people who do a lot of broking because you can complete the transfer for a fee, but without becoming the player's or club's full-time agent. So it's transactional and that works for some people. Now, party to party, that is agent to agent mandates, make sure that if you're taking a mandate from another agent, that it's linked to the representative contract that they have with the player. That is the source of the power, the source of the obligations. Did the agent get permission from the player before giving the mandate? Because players need to be aware that their agent has been giving mandates. In terms of when agent receives the mandate, is it confidential? You need to clarify that from the person giving you the mandate or the agent giving you the mandate or the club. With club mandates, it needs to be formalized. A formalized mandate has the right person at the club signed the mandate. Do they have the power to give the mandate? You've got to make sure of that. Is it the president? Is it someone on the board? Is it the football director? You need to know who has the power to give you a mandate. It can't be someone random. A club may give you a mandate to get rid of some of their players, but do they have the power to offload those players? What if those players have another agent? Be wary of that. Now, before you receive a mandate, you've got to manage expectations. You need to disclose, if you're going to a market that the other agent doesn't or the club wants you to go, you need to disclose what that market looks like. Work permits, salary caps, they only take free players. Do they need certain conflicts declared? You really need to be across this and explain this before you take a mandate on so there are no surprises. There are also some geographical considerations, and certain markets are quite unique, and I'll go briefly through them. With MLS, Major League Soccer in America, yes, obviously you're putting the player to clubs, but also the MLS does the contracts. So make sure that you have authority. If you're taking on a mandate to represent a player into America because you've got the connections, that you can also negotiate with the MLS because they do the final contracts, not just the club. It's a single entity league. Mandates in France and Italy, because national legislation dictates what agents can do in those countries, you have to be very careful with mandates because the French and Italian systems may not recognize you. In Italy, I'll give a very simple example that if someone gives a sports mandate contract, one of the parties of that mandate has to be the player. Whether it's regarding a new contract or a transfer renewal, has to be the player. Just be wary of that. That's part of their legislation, I would say, or sports code. In terms of, say, England or Australia, be wary of conflicts of interest and fiduciary duty. We mentioned that earlier in this podcast because the principal agent relationship is very important in these countries because the way the law works, the common law works. Who you're working for, the club or the player or the other agents. And if you've got conflicts in all three, you need to worry about that. Now, I'll turn to the French. It's interesting that if you want to extend a mandate, because you might get a mandate, it's very fixed, time frame, clubs, and all of a sudden you say to the person giving you the mandate, the other agent, oh, by the way, I've got another club that may be interested. Can you add that? That's an ongoing mandate. Sometimes your instructor or the other agent may not change the parameters officially. 
But that doesn't mean that the mandate's not extended. We know there's been a case in France that if you've got a mandate, but then you also got WhatsApp messages or emails saying, well, we extend that mandate, you can speak to this other club that was not named in the original mandate, then basically that will cover you in terms of the parameters you can work in. It's not just the one written act, it's also other evidence, WhatsApp messages, emails that may extend that mandate. That's important, especially if there's a dispute. And talking about disputes, mandates can be very difficult to enforce, especially if it's multi-jurisdictional parties in different territories. Maybe they can go to the new FIFA agents chamber. Maybe they can go to the court arbitration of sport or the FIFA dispute resolution chambers or its national case law. Mediation may be a good idea here too, have a mediation clause. But I will say this, CAS has got jurisprudence or law, if I could say that. They see international transactions, especially FIFA, international dimension transactions and mandates a lot of times are internationally flavoured or focused because that's what you give a mandate for because you want to look at other markets. And so it's very important. I mentioned this before, lodge the mandate, but also put the FIFA law onto the mandate, the jurisdiction you want to deal with any disputes with and also uploading the mandate and making sure the paperwork's in place. Now, Final tips, if you're collaborating with someone on mandates, make sure they're a licensed agent. When you're drafting a mandate, have a lawyer check it if you're not so sure. As I mentioned, make sure it covers all the FFAR representative contract elements, have an alternative dispute resolution cause. It's not hard. Just see the mandate as a short-term player contract or short-term contract with the club. See, very, very similar, but just shorter term. That protects you to a degree, of course. The final thing I'll say here is prepare a checklist. How many parties on the mandate? I wouldn't be more than three parties. The player, maybe the two agents. I've seen mandates with six agents on there. It just doesn't work. The powers, outline the powers. Yes, you can have, you need to be finding clubs. These are the clubs. It's not just about clubs and markets. Who has the final say in negotiations? What is the commission share? Who's going to pay what, the player or the clubs? And then, of course, the time limit or the transfer window that this mandate is aimed at. So mandates, very important for the business. Three types, club, a lot of them don't have an expiry date. Can be very good if you're a broker and and can do a lot of deals. Player mandate, be very, very careful that you've got some exclusive or you've got certain markers that you're working with so other agents aren't jumping on board. And a mandate between two agents, you need to be very careful that they're controlling the player. They're my tips. I will say this. I think mandates are a very important topic. We have raised it, Jonathan, with FIFA that there should be a CPD module on mandates. I don't know why there isn't. I think we checked recently. There wasn't one on mandates. It is fundamental for our business. And on a complex topic, you brought Italy in. And of course, by the time this goes to air, there is a rumour that the regulations regarding agents in Italy could well drop. So we might have an update to bring you there as well. But the term mandate can certainly prompt some very different responses from agents and other people in football. I think sometimes a lot of these things in the football regulatory world get bogged down in language and terminology. And the football authorities like to use their prescribed wording. And often with that, the practicalities are lost. Hence, I was probably indoctrinated during my earlier years in the agents industry and very much during my time at the AFA, the Association of Football Agents in England, when dealing with the FA who had their mantra for many years at AFA agent meetings of, we don't recognise mandates. 
But over time, I've come to realise three things. And it just comes from experience when it comes to mandates in the agent's world. And this is just my perspective. Firstly, the use of the term mandate is quite common in football agency around the world, but some regions use it more so than others. Secondly, a mandate is in effect on many occasions, not all, a representation agreement, a contract or a subcontract just by another name. However, sometimes, and this is where I can acknowledge some of the reticence from the likes of the FA to the term mandate, some people use the term mandate when trying to use a poorly structured contract or representation agreements. But the flip side to that is that I've seen some mandates over the years that are arguably more professional and practical than some standard representation agreements and contracts. They are because um, they're aimed at a particular transfer project or transaction. After some experience in mandates, pretty much you need to ensure that all parties are clear on their roles, obligations. The aim of the mandate is to get the deal done during a transfer window. That's what it is about. And I think in this side of the world, especially in Asia, you see the mandate a lot of times and you see the passport of the player. You've got authority. It's quite a cultural thing in this part of the world. And if you can get a club mandate, a very especially one of the top 40 clubs in Europe, that can be very lucrative too because that gives you a lot of power. But when you do have a mandate, as I've mentioned before, you need to understand the intricacies, what powers, the obligations, and make sure the people that give the mandate are controlling the transaction or the player in order to make that mandate effective. Now, I hope we've covered some very insightful topics on this episode. The Salah case, very, very important case in the sense of player care and what risks are out there. So agents need to be aware of that. We also discuss one of the key tools that agents use and it's mandates. And that's one area that I think is important and sometimes overlooked. Now, please contact us on our socials or on email if you want to discuss any topic or you want us to feature any guest or you have a question. Also, please go back and listen to some of our other episodes. I think we've got some very interesting guests and comments. Hopefully we've improved as we've come along to towards 30 episodes. Go back and have a listen. On a lighter note, do you think I can get away with this again, Peter? Well, here goes anyway. Take care of yourselves, everyone, until we bring you the next episode of The Agent's Angle, which in the words of FIFA brings you more from the amazing and interesting world of football agents. Bye for now. The purpose of the Agents Angle podcast is to provide news, information and facilitate discussion on regulatory matters, policies, business trends and issues affecting football agents worldwide. The opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and should never be considered legal or professional advice. Furthermore, the views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you for listening.